Welcome to the October 2009 edition of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling, and our special guest this month is Dr. Bob Godfrey, uh, president of Westminster Seminary in California. Bob, good hey, to have Sean. you on. Thank you. Great to be with you. Should give a little of your a uh, little of your bio. Uh, let people know who you are. Although I think most people, who li- all the three people who listen to this podcast, know who you are. Uh, Bob is a professor of church history at Westminster Seminary. One of uh, one of Matt and I's favorite church history professors. Uh, well, except for that other guy that went off to be another seminary president, but we won't talk about him right now. Right. No, um, no. You have degrees from Stanford and Gordon-Conwell. You've taught, uh, you've spent all your years teaching at Westminster Seminary, is that right? Ever since I finished graduate work, that's right. Okay, you went straight to Philadelphia uh, from, I have here, 74 to 81, and then from 81 on, you've been at uh, Westminster in California. That's right. Now, um, just have finished 35 years of teaching, so um, it's amazing I can even talk at this advanced age. Wow. <laughs> and you look so young. Oh, well, if you live in Southern California, there are all sorts of things they can do to you to prop you up. Is, is that what it is? I was, I was wondering about that. I was, cause I was I'm tempted. vain enough, but too cheap is the real truth. So, <laughs> ah, see. Yeah, I just am as I am. Well, I was I tempted. We're going to talk about Calvin today. I was, gonna, I was tempted to ask you if you knew him. Um, just missed him. Just, just missed just, him. Just yeah. missed him. Now you've written. Uh, your writing has really uh, taken off in the past. I'd say in the past five, six years, you've put out a number of books. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming a lot of this is work you've been doing for a long time. It's just finally making it into print. Uh, you had the book on creation, uh, God's yes. pattern for creation. You had. Yes, I think um, about half of your listeners have bought that book. So it's it's been a huge, <laughs> been a huge success. You know, I think I got a free copy. <laughs> well, send me some money, will you? <laughs> okay, I'll, t- I'll toss you a check. Um, Unexpected journey, which is sort of your journey into uh, into Reformation Christianity. Right, right. I um, I had been very provoked by reading a spiritual biography of an evangelical who became Eastern Orthodox, and I thought. Someone should write a, a more personal account of why it's good to be reformed and how you could discover it. And then I realized, well, I had sort of had that journey, so I decided I would write about it. That's that's great. Matt and I have said a number of times on this podcast that that is that's something we've both seen. Uh, I had a college pastor at a, in a PCA church that went on that same trek. Matt and I were in Campus Crusade. We saw a lot of Campus Crusade guys go that direction. So that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's good to know. That's um, do you do you address that in the book, or is it just no, sort of not, sort of subtle? Directly. I'm, I mainly just try to show what I think is both biblical and personally fulfilling about being reformed. Okay, and and I think what's interesting is the numbers of people who, you know, either leave the evangelical movement for Rome or for Eastern Orthodoxy, who I don't think ever had a really full orbed understanding of what. The Reformation and Reformed Christianity was all about. I, I you know, I, I think it really ties into the the title of your program, Ordinary Means. Um, they they really knew a more revivalistic kind of Protestantism that they found ultimately shallow and not very satisfying. And I hmm. think 
that's part of why it's important to help people understand the Reformation and the ordinary means of grace, because I think that really is both biblical and satisfying. Oh yes, well that's great. I, I think I think I, I think that's true because so much of what I saw, particularly in the fellow that I knew that went that direction, was he was sort of looking for the the pure church. Mm. Or the you know something something closer as close to the apostles as he could get. Yes, and, and uh, it's, it you know it's really sad. I say this particularly as a church historian um, that that people who make that move to Rome or to Eastern Orthodoxy really are getting a, a form of religion that is not close to the apostles at all, and uh, it's actually more distant. I would say. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, Roman, Roman Orthodoxy do a good job of, of sort of romanticizing their history, but I, I, I think people are really taken in uh, by what is not historically true. Hmm. As you all remember from studying ancient church history with me, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely. right. Well, so right in the back of my mind. <laughs> since we're <laughs> talking about Calvin, I, I'm, it brings to mind, is was it Lassane where Calvin... Was quoting the the church fathers. Is that the, was that the the debate he had? Um, well, throughout his life, in a number of different circumstances, he he quoted the fathers. He was he was pretty well read in the fathers, and and uh, felt that the fathers were at least as much on the side of the Reformation as they were on Rome's side. Um, hmm. In fact felt quite strongly that the Reformation he, he didn't believe the fathers were infallible by any means, but he felt on balance what the fathers were saying was uh, very much like what the Reformation was saying. So would you say he saw himself recovering to use the language of my friend in Eastern Orthodoxy was Calvin um, in a sense also seeking the pure church? Well, I, you know, I think Calvin was a biblical realist and, and didn't think that you could, you know, have a, a perfectly pure church. But he he certainly was trying to find an apostolic and biblical church. Um, he he believed that uh, the church as he knew it in the late Middle Ages had, in so many areas, departed from um, the, uh, the the church to which both the scriptures and the early fathers bore witness. One, one interesting uh, case of that, for example, is in the use of um, icons and images in the church, which um, you know are very prevalent in the Orthodox and Roman churches, and yet Calvin knew that the early church fathers had, with a single voice, up until the early 4th century, adamantly opposed any kind of images or icons in the church. So... Um, he certainly felt on on a point like that he was the real traditionalist he was the one really in touch with the position of the fathers on that point hmm. now you've just done a book on calvin or it's just been released calvin john calvin um pilgrim it's not i almost said pilgrim or pastor it's not no, a mystery pilgrim book and pastor. <laughs> right it's pilgrim and pastor um tell us tell us about the book well, um, I have studied and, and uh, lectured about John Calvin for, yeah, um, nearly 35 30 years. years. Yeah. And uh, even even before I started to teach, I was working on Calvin. And um, 
I thought in this anniversary year, the 500th anniversary of his birth, um, what would be really helpful is to try to distill um, what what I had learned into a little book that would be an introduction to Calvin. I think, you know, there are many fine, detailed scholarly studies of Calvin, but I think um, it's harder to find a good introduction to both his life and thought. There are books that focus on his life and books that focus on his thought, but not too many, especially at an introductory level, try to integrate his life and thought and, and show how, how the two are connected. And that's what I'm I'm trying to do in, in my book. Um, and to, to show uh, both the breadth and uh, profundity of Calvin's approach to biblical religion. And um, so I... I I really tried to write it in a way that would be accessible to um, many people in the church, not just to ministers or scholars. Are you familiar? Because I think Calvin's so important um, a figure in the history of the church. Are you familiar with Piper's Swans Are Not Silent series? No. He's, he has a little series of um, sort of mini biographies, but that's that of. Uh, that tends to be his take as well, is let's combine their, their life with their thought. Yes. Uh, another one that comes to mind is Alan Jacobs on C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. although it's a different, uh, uh, certainly different uh, person, but he really in, in the Narnian tries to bring out those, those connections that make uh, C.S. Lewis who he is in his writings. Right. Um, so that's good. So this is written for the layman. Uh, yes, um, you know the fabled intelligent layman. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, as I say, tried to make the book accessible, and and the, the basic thesis of the book is that the real Calvin is Calvin as minister of the word, and t- today he tends to still be seen as a great theologian, as a ba- great Bible commentator, but I think um, uh, that's slightly off-putting to the average person. You know, it's nice he's a great theologian, but what does that have to do with me? And um, I, I think that he really does his theology, and he does his biblical commenting to help himself as a minister and help other ministers. And it's it's primarily for him what it means to be a minister of the Word and to try to build Christians up in the faith. And that's what I try to show in this book. I was. Uh, it's. In, I'll interject something at this point because I was um, preaching this past Sunday out of Acts 17 in Paul's address in Marseille, and I was trying to cover in short compass uh, omnipresence and independence of God um, quickly in one sermon. <laughs> and so uh, I pulled off the shelf um, Burkhoff and Hodge just to make sure that I was absolutely picture perfect sharp on what I was going to say, right. and uh, probably should have pulled off Calvin. I uh, didn't uh, his institutes and try and work my way through what he had to say in those two attributes. But it strikes me that, uh, just to the point you just made, Dr. Godfrey, that, that um, Calvin Calvin's institutes is really a quite different thing than, than Burkhoff or Hodge or um, other systematic theologies. And it, do you sense that it's quite... It's, I find it much more devotional, if you will, um, than cold, hard theology, if you will. Um, maybe comment on that. Uh, yeah, I, I think part of that is stylistic. Um, Calvin wrote um, at, at a period where there was a movement away from the uh, very technical 
theological writing of the Middle Ages that had been influenced a lot by the methodology of Aristotle, and he was influenced by the um, revival known as the Renaissance, and and part of the the Renaissance's conviction was that learning needed to be not only intelligent but also eloquent. It had to speak in a moving and powerful way. And so Calvin's writing really was um, profoundly influenced by that movement, and and he was determined to be uh, a communicator who not only made truth plain, but made it passionate and clear and and moving. And um, so we're we, we really see that his his institutes are not technical in the way that later systematic theologies are technical, but they are very yeah I think devotional is one way of putting it very much in the spirit of the Bible and mm-hmm. um, uh, so still still very accessible. Some people have trouble reading the Institutes because it was a book that grew over the decades of Calvin's life. He kept revising it and and changing it and as it as it grew, he included more and more polemical material against his opponents to try to answer his critics and for some people writing from the nice perspective of the 21st century, uh, Calvin can seem um, caustic and, and uh, sometimes almost brutal in his polemic against his opponents. But you have to bear in mind that that's the way most people were writing in his day. Calvin uh, does not stand out as a particularly sharp polemicist, but um, from the perspective of our culture, sometimes that's off-putting for some people. So that was part of the cultural eloquence of that day, absolutely, and and Calvin was regarded as a a master stylist um, of his own day, uh, both in the Latin and in the French languages. Um, many people believe that Calvin's French was a, a key element in the evolution of the modern French language and the modern French style of writing. So um, he he was a he was a very powerful communicator. Hmm. What would be the best English translation of the Institutes? Well, the, the, the most widely used today is the, uh, the Battles uh, translation edited by John McNeil, and it's, it's a very good uh, translation. It, it reads in a more modern way. Uh, it, it, as a loose comparison, one might say that, that Battles at Points is more like an NIV Bible. It, it's slightly paraphrased in the interests of modernity and if you look at some of the older translations um, like Norton for example um, you sometimes get a better literal translation of Calvin but it sometimes then becomes a little stilted and wooden so what I did in my book was to try to take uh, the Norton translation and and modernize it since it's no longer copyrighted you can do that and um, (laughs) try to keep both close to the original language of Calvin, but also updated in a way that... Uh, it, it, it's sad to read a, uh, a translation of Calvin that makes him sound kind of antiquated, because his language at the time he wrote was far from being antiquated. It was very contemporary and powerful. And he's writing in French, right? Well, um, he wrote some things in French, but uh, most of his uh, more scholarly work, like the Institutes, was, was first written in Latin. And then was uh, tra- um, he was off, he was involved in the translation of the Latin text into French of the Institutes. Okay. Um, so is, is so it, it, late, later editions of the Institutes were written particularly for theological students, um, 
And so Latin was the appropriate language to bring that out in initially, and then it was translated so a broader audience could also read it. Talking about the devotional nature of the Institutes, do you, do you see that as part of his connection, Calvin's connection, uh, with Augustine? Because Augustine was, was publishing the Confessions, which is something very few <laughs> uh, church fathers or very few people in church history have been able to do well, uh, which is a, a testimony. Um, is that, do you see, is that part of the tie between Calvin and, and Augustine? Well, I think, I think part of the tie is that they were both um, functioning as pastors and preachers, and therefore um, were, were constantly aware of, of what it required to be able to communicate to common people. And um, so they were not withdrawn academics. They were not university people whose whose primary audience became fellow scholars or or graduate students. So I, I think it gives to both of them a, a common touch that um, makes them much more accessible than many other writers. At that time, were the, the pastors the scholars as compared to today where we seem to have a distinction between the two? Well, there were, there were people who were, um, you know, Academics whose life was primarily lived in the um, in the university, although um, most of the leaders of the Reformation were primarily uh, pastors, and um, uh, Luther was a little more of a scholar, a, a university scholar than Calvin was, although he regularly preached as well um, at a local church in Wittenberg. So, uh, I think all of them were committed to the notion that uh, scholarship was a servant of the Church and uh, a, a servant of the Reformation of the Church, rather than um, somehow standing outside the Church or dominating the Church. Um, it was a, a very uh, practical kind of movement in a lot of ways. Which is very similar to the, uh, the guiding principles of Westminster Seminary. Right. Um, Westminster, California, um, has always been dedicated uh, in the first place to preparing ministers. Um, and that's why we haven't got into the business of Ph.D. degrees and other good things, but things that are very time-consuming for faculty. We, we have wanted our faculty to be, to be available to students and to, to really focus on the preparation of uh, future pastors for the church, because we think that's so crucial to the well-being of the church. Did any of the other faculty go to the Calvin 500? Yeah, actually, we were the best represented seminary by quite a bit. Oh. Um, not to brag, you understand, but just in the interest of full disclosure. This is um, full. Yep. Never, never bragging. No, never bragging. Um, uh, Howell Jones, um, who has taught practical theology for us a number of years, was another of the preachers at the uh, Calvin 500 in Geneva this July. And uh, uh, Michael Horton and Scott Clark, both teacher full-time, um, gave scholarly papers, as did Daryl Hart, who's one of our um, part-time professors here. And then uh, one of our trustees, Terry Johnson, who's a uh, a PCA minister in Savannah, Georgia, uh, was the 
one who planned the worship services that were held in Calvin's church in Geneva. So we were we were very well involved in in the uh, in the conference. Very very much so. Now you preached at one of those worship services. Right. The um, it, it was a very full conference. It went five days, and uh, each morning of the week began with uh, about five scholarly lectures, and then each evening there were three sermons um, as part of a, uh, a kind of grand worship service in the evening. And um, I was one of the preachers in the evening, and it was, it was uh, for a church historian especially, a wonderful moment to be in Calvin's church preaching, stand in his pulpit, and um, uh, sing quite a number of Genevan psalms uh, that had been sung in Calvin's day there. So it was, uh, it really was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. Uh, the text you chose, uh, it shocked the people who were putting this together? I, I guess they thought you would go take a different angle than the text you chose? Well, uh, David Hall, who is the principal organizer of the conference, is an old friend, and he had contacted me early to ask if I'd preach, and then asked what text I would like, and uh, I think I was the first or one of the first to be able to choose a text, and uh, I asked for John 17.3, and he, he was a little surprised. He said that he thought people would all be battling to preach from Romans or Ephesians, and uh, um, I explained that I thought I could make a case that John 17.3 was Calvin's favorite text, and that's the one I wanted to preach from. Well, I've I've heard good. I haven't heard the sermon, but I've heard that it was well received. Uh, tell us a little bit about why why you chose that text, and it's it's Calvin's favorite text, huh? You want to? Uh, my argue wife for thought that? it was a marvelous sermon, so um, you know your your viewers should be aware of that. Okay. Um, your viewers, that's not quite right, is it? Your hearers. You are supposed to preach to an audience of one, but not her. <laughs> she wasn't there alone, but um, she was very flattering, so I remember well her remarks afterwards. Um, uh, you know, in, in Calvin's writing, he nowhere says, this is my favorite text, but it, as you read widely in Calvin, it, it's amazing the relatively large number of times he refers to John 17.3, and um, uh, twice in the Genevan Catechism that he wrote, uh, he refers to John 17.3, uh, a number of times in various um, commentaries, he refers to John 17:3, and uh, in a marvelous chapter in the Institutes, uh, Book Two, Chapter Six, if I remember right, um, it, it, he really uh, shows in using John 17:3 how Christocentric his his religion is, and I I was eager to preach from that text because I, I think it shows that. Um, Calvin's religion is Christocentric in a, in a fully biblical way, and that uh, he was not interested in what we might think as eccentric issues of theology, but uh, always came back to the center of things. And his interest in matters of grace alone, the sovereignty of God, predestination, were, were all interests to make clear the centrality of Christ and his saving work. They were not ends in, in in themselves, so that's why I was eager to preach from that text. If your if your listeners don't have a Bible open before them, that that text is, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So uh, it's a very simple text. It's a, a beautiful summary of the gospel, and uh, 
captures the heart, I think, of what true Reformed religion is all about. That's actually intriguing because I think that in you know in the years that I've lived in uh, the Reformed faith, I think that the the easiest thing is to develop sort of a polemical stance against others who don't agree with us, mm-hmm. and to in a sense miss that point that Calvin never lost which is that the point of all these doctrines that we can know God and that that's amazing in itself since it's not what we deserve even though it's what we were made for right. so it's kind of neat as advanced as he was that he never missed he didn't lose that point that we seem to lose so many times yeah and that that, tra- that little transitional chapter in the Institutes um, book 2 chapter 6 is intriguing because you know, uh, before he's gotten there, he's, he's talked about God, he's talked about the Trinity, he's talked about uh, providence and God's sovereign oversight over all things. And in that, in that second chapter, as he comes to Christ, he says, um, all that we have said to this point is useless unless we recognize that in Christ, God, this powerful God he's talked about, God is our Father. So that's the real heart of Christian religion for him. Um, uh, it, it's crucial, of course, to know the glory and power and splendor uh, of God and, and how he is uh, sovereign over all things. But in terms of our religious experience, the heart of the matter is to recognize this powerful God is our Father for Christ's sake, and that that's the very essence of religion for Calvin. Amazing. Wonderful, too. Good reminder. Yes. Yes. Why do you yep. think? Uh, why do you think he had the uh, the opponents that he did when he was so? Was it his gospel centeredness that people were reacting to? Yeah, I think I think in part it was. I think um, you know the concomitant of of his gospel centeredness was the helplessness of of man, and um, that that of course always evokes or, or always yeah evokes a, a prideful response on the part of many um, you know I'm glad to have God help me but I'm not willing to admit that I'm so helpless I can't do anything so that was part of it um, you know his his primary critics were uh, the Roman Catholics who who by and large wanted to maintain some role for human cooperation in in the process of salvation he was also criticized by what we could call the more humanist or, or uh, yeah, a, uh, a, a religious perspective that again stressed the the ability of man to be involved in religion, a, a kind of you know foretaste of of more modern liberal Protestant thinking. And he was criticized by Lutherans because he did not embrace uh, all of their. Uh, formulae about the Lord's Supper, and um, I I give more space than maybe some people wish I did to the whole debate about the sacraments in my little book, because that was a critical issue in the 16th century, and grieved Calvin greatly, because he thought his views were very close to Luther's, and didn't think the differences between them should be um, allowed to cause uh, the separation that it was causing not not between Calvin and Luther personally because they didn't really know each other, but between uh, Calvin and later some later Lutherans. 
Do you, just a curiosity, historical curiosity question. If you could have had in the Latin parlance of the day, sort of where I think Big Duncan sort of ended up, you know, as things have evolved here very recently, in something like true communion with God, mm-hmm. something that substantial but neutral, do you think they could have lived with something like that? There actually was not a common way that could have encompassed both of their views. Well, what you have on on what Calvin regarded as the hyper-Lutheran side was a profound suspicion that the Reformed were always floating out ways of speaking that the hyper-Lutherans thought were just subtle ways of trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and denying what needed to be affirmed. Hmm. Uh, Calvin thought this was unfair and a misrepresentation. And, and he felt in his correspondence, for example, with Philip Melanchthon, who, whom he regarded as a moderate Lutheran, that he and Philip could easily have, have reached a common agreement. Of course, a lot of the hyper-Lutherans turned on Melanchthon, too, um, and, and rejected his, uh, his approach. Um, uh, there, there's a great story that that Luther himself, in his old age, read uh, a treatise that Luther, uh, that Calvin had written called a, a, a short treatise on the Holy Supper of our Lord, and that Luther was supposed to have said after reading it, if that man and I could sit down for half an hour, we could iron out all the differences. Now, some have suggested that story is apocryphal, one of the frustrations of historians is some of these things are hard to trace down. Um, but I, I do think there were really a, a lot of close similarities between um, what drove Luther and what drove Calvin on the Lord's Supper, and that uh, had they been able to meet, it would have been interesting to see what would have come out of it. Um, but uh, Luther was really... They did overlap some, but uh, Luther was really a generation older than Calvin, and there never was an occasion for them to meet. Where does the, I'm going to say this wrong, the, the consensus Tigurinus? Am I saying yeah, that correctly? Consensus Tigurinus, Tigurinus. Yeah. Where does that come into play in this uh, in this debate? In the, in the, well, that, that was part of the agreement, right? Well, it was the agreement that uh, Calvin and the Genevan ministers were able to reach with Heinrich Bollinger, and the ministers at Zurich. Tigurinus is the Latin word for Zurich. Okay, so following so, Zwingli. Uh, yeah, Zwingli, of course, was was dead before Calvin came on the scene. But um, Calvin Calvin felt that there were hyper-Lutherans with whom there was really no chance of his communicating or getting along. But there were moderate Lutherans that he hoped uh, he could reach an agreement with. Um, in, in the same way, he, he thought there was a kind of hyper-Zwinglian position that he wasn't interested in um, in agreeing with. But he thought there were moderate Zwinglians, like Bullinger, with whom he could reach an agreement. And whereas um, he never really was able to pull off a specific agreement with the Lutherans, um, he did reach this agreement with um, with Bullinger. And, of course, the hyper-Lutherans immediately used that as, that as evidence that he... He was paying, playing mm. fast and loose with the way he was speaking. But um, I think when you study the consensus Tigurinus carefully, you find that he really did preserve his own approach to the Lord's Supper, and uh, I think got some interesting concessions from Bullinger, and um, that there there were ways of speaking there about the Lord's Supper that um, I think probably would have been attractive to Philip Melanchthon as well. 
is some of that hmm, is some of that unwillingness to see that when we try and capture something that's admittedly um, difficult, dense, mysterious uh, in some fashion on purpose, larger than us. Uh, is there some sense of a, a renaissance sort of holdover there that we can nail it perfectly? And if you don't nail it perfectly, I'm going to disagree with you. Um, I, I, what, what I think is more at work there is the, the Luther's passion was to make clear that the, the promises of God were present and available to everyone who believed. And I think part of the way he tried to stress that, that Christ was not a distant Christ, but was a present Christ, was in stressing Christ's presence in the Eucharist and the availability of the of a presence that was so um, indestructible that even the unworthy in receiving the, the Lord's Supper um, received Christ, not to blessing, but received him. And, and Calvin felt that um, Christ could only be received where there was faith. That, that was the nub of the issue, I think. Um, okay. Calvin bent over backward to talk about the reality of receiving Christ with the communion. But mm -hmm. um, he felt Christ, the, 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 yeah, the, the bridge that could never really be crossed with the later Lutherans was um, the issue of whether faith had to be present for Christ to be received. And uh, Calvin even went so far in the Institutes as to come up with a formula, which is an intriguing one, that Christ is given where there is no faith, but he is not received where there is no faith. And I, mm. I think, I, I still sort of think, and of course my Lutheran friends would say, well, that's just because I'm Reformed. I still rather think that that formula might have worked with Luther himself. But I think things had gotten so hardened by the second and third generation of the Lutherans that... Um, you really just had to embrace their confessional language, and uh, there, there was no room for any sort of further clarification. Comparing Calvin with Luther, why why do you think Calvin was not, has not historically been as I hate to use this term, but as popular as as Luther has been? You know, Time Magazine had uh, Luther on the cover. For his 500th, I don't right. think Calvin made it. No, I was I was crushed. Um, although it was <laughs> interesting, earlier in the year, Time Magazine had an issue of ten new ideas, and uh, Calvinism was one of the ten new ideas, which I thought was rather intriguing. Um, number three, actually. Number three, right? Yeah. Um, sort of it goes along with this notion of young restless and reformed um, what, what's your take on that on that movement um, well I I think um, to the extent that the movement rightly is stressing that we're saved by grace alone we should rejoice in it um, that's um, what brings glory to Christ and uh, um, it is it is a great thing, and if we see that in in a variety of uh, circles where maybe at times we would be surprised to find it, I think that's wonderful. Um, so, um, if if we see a real revival of Augustinianism or 
or Paul's theology about grace alone, and uh, often accompanied by a rather clear statement of faith alone. I think that's wonderful. I, I don't think I want to say that that really is enough to be reformed. I think the only sensible definition of what it is to be reformed is to embrace one of the reformed confessions. And the reformed confessions are about a lot more than, than grace alone and faith alone, as important, obviously, as those are. So that real reformed Christianity is, um, is a matter of, of the church and of a disciplined community. I, I think part of the reason that Calvin is for some people less attractive than Luther is his stress upon the importance of a disciplined church life that uh, um, many people see as oppressive um, and some Calvinists have made it oppressive but I, I think I think that's an important issue so that uh, the life of the church for, for Calvinists is not just affirming faith alone and grace alone but it's also affirming um, you know, involvement in the life of the church, the use of the ordinary means of grace, the the doctrine of the covenant, so that um, families are included in the church. Um, it it has implications for the way in which we worship. There there are all sorts of things that are connected there. So, you know, a revival of a stress on grace is great, but it it's not the wholeness of what it takes to be reformed. Um, in the Middle Ages, there were a number of theologians who believed you were saved by grace alone and remained good Roman Catholics. So um, being reformed is, is a broader matter than just uh, the issue of grace. What would we compare Calvin and Luther's contributions? Um, there was I was reading the um, Colin Hansen interviewed you for Christianity Today, and I, I liked the question he asked. He said, how might history have turned out differently if Calvin had never been born, uh, particularly, I just read uh, uh, David Hall's book from the Calvin 500 series on uh, as his introduction to Calvin, and he lists ten things that are just of epic proportion: things right. like economics and politics, education. Um, maybe you could comment on that. Right. I think um, you know you can't uh, attribute all of these things to Calvin alone. But um, Calvin had a profound impact. His, his life, his vision of Christianity, his own work had a profound impact on, on areas that we often don't think of as uh, particularly having a connection to him. Uh, many scholars believe that the rise of modern democracy was influenced by Calvinism and uh, its um, willingness to challenge uh, traditional authorities who were oppressive of the faith. Um, uh, you mentioned education, and certainly uh, Calvin's stress upon the importance of Christians being able to read the Bible was an important factor in the rise of uh, universal literacy and a, an educational system that was would be provided for not just an elite, but for all people. Um, Calvin was the first... Uh, theologian in the history of the church to defend the idea of charging interest, which had profound influence on uh, modern economic theory and, and the rise of capitalism. Um, Calvin um, is, is credited with, with contributing to the rise of modern science in the sense that uh, he helped desacralize nature and, and make it a, a, legi a legitimate area of study apart from theology. 
So th- there are many, many ways in which Calvin influenced the um, the rise of the modern world in the West. And, and again, he certainly didn't do any of these things single-handedly. But his vision of Christianity and of the relationship of God to the world was uh, was very important um, an important influence in all of these areas and the changes we've seen since the 16th century. And why do you think that isn't being acknowledged in in things like Time Magazine? Is do you think that's because of the 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 myths about Calvin that have been floating out there over the years? Yeah, I think. Um, I, I think uh, many people in our culture are not well educated about the 16th century or about John Calvin, and they are left with these general um, feelings or, uh, or opinions about him that are not well substantiated, that somehow he was oppo- opposed to anything joyful, you know, the famous definition of Puritanism, the Puritan is someone who worries that somewhere someone is having a good time and um, that sort of gets transferred to Calvin it's not true of the Puritans or of Calvin um, you gave a, you gave a sermon uh, at a, a I think you mentioned at a, at a URC and the title was something like did Calvin's wife die of boredom was that? Uh, yeah that was one of the uh, that was one of the charges that was brought against him in his own lifetime that his wife had died of boredom which was unfair and untrue and uh, but that's the kind of thing that got said about him and then of course it was linked to the notion that he was a persecutor you know the the story of Michael Servetus and his execution for heresy in Geneva and uh, this has left the impression then that that Calvin yeah is is sort of boring critical dour um, uh, opposed to anything enjoyable in life and a persecutor so yeah, he does come across in that kind of caricature as a rather unattractive person. But it, it's all really an unfair press um, that needs to be corrected and that I, again, tried to correct a little bit in my book uh, to make clear um, these are not the things that characterize John Calvin. And uh, now he did live in a different world. He did have a different attitude uh, about things than we do. Um, he was involved in persecuting heresy, but uh, actually he was less a persecutor than many, many in the 16th century. And uh, to, to hang that on him in some unique way is is patently unfair. Have you read, I know you are a lover of novels, have you yeah. read uh, Douglas Bond's uh, novel on Calvin? No, no, I've not even heard of it. Oh, it's uh, it's called The Betrayal. And he he does Calvin's life from uh, the perspective of a man who hates him, and who ends up becoming in in order to 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 fish him out and to turn him over to the Roman Catholic authorities. This man ends up becoming Calvin's servant, um, and through the course of it, you know, through the course of the book, ends up realizing I can't betray this man. Uh, so it's very interesting. I think you I think you would enjoy it. I, I did have one question uh, for you from that book. Maybe I'll maybe I'll ask you in a. We'll have you back on for a future podcast. Go. Re- here's your assignment. You gave okay. me a, you gave me assignments <laughs> for four years. So uh, go go read the novel. I, I have a question for you about his take on Calvin's view of music. Huh. The the second to last chapter, he sort of he he weaves in you know history with it. It's historical fiction. But okay. um, but t- yeah, take a look at that. I'll I'll ask you to at a later point. Um, 
Well, we're at about time. We've got uh, lightning round here of questions. Okay. 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 Put your thinking cap on. Put your thinking cap on. Here you go. <laughs> Do I there, get points? Is there a prize? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a thousand points to everyone. Okay. Uh, just for participating. So, if um, you just participated in the Calvin 500, uh, your fascination with Amy Semple McPherson, will there be an Amy 120 next year, and will you speak at it? Um, I, I don't know if there'll be an Amy. Uh, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, that's right, 120 next year. Um, if they invite me, I'll speak at it. Um, I think uh, Amy Semple McPherson is a fascinating counterpoint to Calvin. And uh, I, um, as you know, I've been working very slowly on a, on a book on Amy Semple McPherson. And I, part of the thesis of the book would be that um, one brief way of talking about the difference between Pentecostalism and Calvinism is to say that Calvinism is the religion of the ordinary and Pentecostalism is the religion of the extraordinary. And uh, you have to wait for the book to have that unpacked in a lightning round. <laughs> okay. The, um, would Calvin have been more popular if he had uh, learned from Amy Semple McPherson? Everyone would be more popular if they learned from Amy Semple. <laughs> they learned from her. Okay. What's uh, favorite class that you've taught recently at Westminster? Uh, last uh, spring, I taught a class on how to preach the Psalms, and I uh, really enjoyed doing that. I've been working on a little book on the Psalms uh, for students of the Word and preachers, and uh, I enjoyed that a lot. The faculty here is slightly annoyed that I'm doing these biblical things, and I'm pointing out to them that actually studying the Bible is much easier than studying church history. That's actually fascinating, if I can interject here something in the lightning round. Because I think it's the it's the depth and the richness of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man that you get devotionally in the Psalms as they struggle as they struggle and to sing and pray despite life that um, gives the backbone I think to a real biblical religion gives so the experience right. of God to, of, yeah. to people that the yeah. sister Amy was trying to give them was an experience of God right but in revivalism you don't have that depth. So you have to go for the experience somewhere else. Exactly, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, I think Calvin felt that as well. Uh, he uh, he really felt connected to the Psalms, and uh, mm. that's why he wanted them to be available to be sung in the churches. Mm. That sort of ties in with music. That was a great concern of his. Mm. Well, tying in then, you said you've been doing more biblical uh, lectures. Is there a, is there a text that's really spoken to you powerfully recently? Um, well, there there are a number. I um, last year I, in our adult Sunday school class in our church, I taught taught a course on the Book of the Revelation and uh, found it uh, a profound spiritual experience, far beyond what I expected. I'd resisted teaching the Book of the Revelation for years, and uh, I just really found it marvelous to, to study, but I the um, the text I've returned to again and again um, for myself and for others is from Psalm 9, which interestingly was John Knox's favorite psalm, um, Psalm 9 verse 10, and those who know your, your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And I think that's a wonderful promise of encouragement um, to anyone who is um, seeking the Lord uh, in faith, that uh, the Lord uh, does not forsake us in 
um, seeking him. Mm. Books we should be reading. Uh, let's see. Uh, Calvin Pilgrim and Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> self-promotion. I knew it was coming. <laughs> um, well, if you if you want a novel, Richard Rousseau's new novel on uh, uh, that old Cape Magic I just read, and uh, uh, Richard Rousseau is a very interesting novelist, and uh, uh, caused me to do a lot of thinking about the relationships of generations in families. Um, <laughs> uh, but. Um, on, on theology, read Calvin. Don't don't neglect classics in your reading. I think I would want to say to a lot of students. Um, read old Calvin. books. Pardon me? Read old books. Read old books. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, Howell Jones is just uh, on the point of publishing um, a commentary on Psalm 119, which are chapel talks he gave here, and uh, it's a wonderful insight into Psalm 119 that I think many of us find kind of daunting and repetitive and uh, he does a splendid job with that he also has a commentary on Job that is very very helpful yeah I heard him speak on that at the banner conference I believe yeah. and it was it was very good very good the, now is the Psalm 119 is that in the Let's Study series or is that just an independent I think it's I think it's independent and it's not quite out yet but it should be out in the next couple of months I think okay Okay. Well, thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Yes. Blessings on your work. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. 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 Well, you've been listening to the October podcast of Ordinary Means. The Lord bless you richly as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Mm-hmm.